just a practical point based off of what we just did. I thought it was interesting as, as we got quiet and it's a small group that even in this small group, the beauty of our voices joined together, praising and proclaiming the greatness of God. That is a picture of what he intends for his church. When you think about it, his, his picture is, is certainly there's going to be times that you're walking out there by yourself, but you are never alone. You should be surrounded by the, by the people of God, uh, even if it's in by, by prayer, but, but certainly there should be deep relationship that together your lives proclaim the greatness of God so that others can see it. So I just wanted to bring that to attention. It kind of fits in today, but, but the reality of what we just did, I didn't want you to miss it. But as we move today into this last word from Jesus, from the cross, as we, as we move into the, the last really session of this series, uh, this series of seven sayings of the cross, we're going to look at his, at his final statement, those words that he spoke just before he gave it up and, and, and died. But before we do that, I really feel like we need to, we need to just take time and, and, and make sure that through this series, we haven't missed the forest for the trees. We have looked at each of these statements individually and in, in, a, in a way in which we tried to understand each one. But the reality is today that I think as we close it out, we need, to, we need to make sure that we see the process by which Jesus went through and the pattern that he laid out as he spoke these words, even, even seemingly being intentional as he chose what to say. And the first word, in, in fact, the first three words really give us the process of salvation. They depict for us what happens to make us saved. And remember, this is a question we've been asking uh, all through this series because of the the emphasis we've taken through this, uh, through this series of sevens when we talked about the worship, the call to worship through the seven sabbatical festivals out of the Old Testament, the, the emphasis that Jesus is the object of worship through the Gospels and his um, seven miracles uh, that, that John portrayed, and then now how we become able worshipers or acceptable worshipers based on the cross. Well, Jesus lays that out for us in his first three statements. We see in the first word, the word of forgiveness, we see him providing forgiveness from God to us. That's, that's our, one of our greatest needs in all of life. It's not, it, it, it overrides food, it overrides air we breathe, water we drink. We need forgiveness from the great God who created us. And through the cross, we see Jesus providing that forgiveness as he prayed for forgiveness. The second word, the word of salvation, in response to God's forgiveness, salvation is made possible. In fact, Jesus promised salvation to a thief. But both thieves didn't, both thieves didn't get to enjoy the salvation or they didn't enjoy the promise of salvation. Just one, the one that was repentant. And so in that second word, we see the repentant being promised salvation. So we see forgiveness being applied to the repentant leading into salvation. Well, the third word then gives us the fruit of that, of that process, or it gives us the results of that process as we studied the word of affection. We see Jesus providing for us forgiveness. We see him promising salvation to the repentant. And then he says, in light of all that, when that has all occurred, here is my affection. I care so much for you that I'm not leaving you just by yourselves. I'm drawing you together as my people. A beautiful, what a beautiful thing. We see that overarching, that overarching process being worked out just in those first three words. But then we move past that to the fourth word. And here in the fourth, fifth, and sixth word, we really begin to see the foundation 
of those of those of that process of those first three words how in the world did jesus work out salvation for us how did he provide forgiveness what did he do that made it made god able to to do this for us and in that fourth word the word of anguish it reveals that jesus death was a substitutionary death he died in our place for our sins. He died and, and he experienced separation and anguish from God so that believers, those who trust in him and become repentant, receive salvation and enjoy connection and relationship with God. Now, the fifth word, the word of suffering, showed us that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah. If he had been any other man, if he had, been, if he had not fulfilled every prophecy, that, that had ever been foretold about him, if he had not done everything that needed to be done, he'd have just been another average Joe hanging on a cross. And the reality is, is the average Joe's hung on the cross all the time in Rome. We don't see it in our day, but that was a common circumstance or common situation that people saw just average people hanging on crosses. It was, it was normal. He had just been another guy, another, another man hanging on the cross. But we see Jesus in, in, light of his, in, in light of his suffering, but more to fulfill the prophecies that were written about him. He said, I thirst. And he fulfilled that last thing that needed to be done to fulfill all that was written about him. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one God from Genesis chapter 3 when God said that, that, that there was going to be a seed from Eve and, and that he would crush the heel or, or that he would crush the head of the enemy. That's who he was referring to. When he promised to Abraham that there would be a seed, one that came from him that would bless the nations. He's the one he was speaking of. This is the, this is the one. He's, the, he's the, 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 the promised one, the Messiah. And so we see him as our substitute. We see him as the Messiah, the the. the, um, the the priest that we needed to stand between us and God, the anointed one that would make reconciliation for us. And we see in the sixth word, the word of victory, the one that Matt brought to you last week, we see that Jesus, as he did everything necessary to ensure that he was the, the prophesied one, to demonstrate that he was the one that had been foretold, he also did everything that was necessary to pay the price for our sins. He atoned for our sins. He satisfied the debt. He ensured that there was nothing left to be done, no work to be accomplished so that you might enjoy this relationship with God. He did that for you. He, he did that for everyone that comes in faith. He did that, making it available that we could proclaim God's goodness, God's grace, and God's mercy for all that would believe in Jesus Christ. He did that. So that now you sit here today as believers in Jesus. You can sit here today not, not thinking, oh man, I've got I to read my Bible more. I've got to pray more. I've got I to be at church more. I've got to give more. I've got to do more. I've got to make sure that I don't leave anything out. Because if I do, when I stand before God, I might not be, I might not have done enough. You don't have to be that person. You don't have to live that life. Jesus said it was finished. Because the work was finished that's why we can stand where we stand but the reality is that i think today in this seventh word 
I think the, 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 the seventh word doesn't just teach us more about the foundation. I think it's the foundation that undergirds the foundation. I think it's the thing that in, enables us to begin to see why all of these things that Jesus did, being the substitute, being the Messiah, being the atonement, all of these things, they started somewhere. They're built on something. And I think we see it in the seventh word. The word of contentment. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. The notes will be on the screen. Certainly, if you want to follow along with Version Live, if you've got a smart device, I'm actually going to call you out for that here in a little bit, but don't feel bad about it. It's a, it's a good thing. Um, I've got two that are sitting up here. In fact, you're, you guys are going to hate me for this. I forgot to start my timer. We'll just act like I just began. How's that? <clears throat> well, we're going to be in Luke, chapter 23. If you've got your Bibles, I certainly encourage you to follow along. But the reality is, is that in Christ, well, not just in Christ, Christ sets the example for us in contentment. I mean, He, he is the, 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 uh, he's the standard for contentment. Jesus was satisfied in his Father. He was satisfied in his Father's will. He was at peace with whatever God called him to do. The reason that he had endured so much already was because he believed so much in the kingdom that his, God, that his Father was establishing. And I think we begin to see that portrayed in, in this last and final phrase from Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 44. And it says this, <clears throat> It was about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. We've dealt with this already. It was dark. There was this, there was this moment where Jesus was in anguish. God had essentially uh, uh, separated from him. He had become sin. He was detestable to his father. I, again, I don't know how that works out in the whole scheme of the Trinity. I don't know how, how the mystery of that unfolds in the Godhead. But the reality is, is that what, that's what we see happening. It says that it lasted for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And while the sunlights failed, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling with a loud voice, said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. Three hours of darkness. The sun's lights failed. Some people say it's an eclipse. I mean, at the Passover, it's a full moon, so the likelihood of an eclipse happening is nil. But you know what? Just let people deal with it. Eclipses don't last three hours. The, 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 the evidence is on our side. You don't have to feel bad about it. You don't have to make an excuse for it. The reality is this occurred as a miraculous event as Jesus hung on the cross and paid the price for you and for me. And, and, and it's okay. Because He chose to be in this place. Three hours of darkness, three hours of this, of this anguish that he dealt with. The physical suffering, not, not to mention the beatings and the stuff that led to the cross. The crown of thorns being pressed upon his head. The nails being driven through his hands and his feet. Not to mention the, the, all of his body's weight hanging on those nails. But he comes to this place and he's, he's physically suffering. For the first time we hear him speak out about what he's enduring physically. And he says, I thirst. And at that point, every prophecy, everything is done. He has no reason to languish there any longer. He says, it is finished. The work I've come to do is done. 
I don't have to be here any longer. Here's the, here's the, the principle I think that we should apply in our life. Don't suffer just for suffering's sake. Don't cause yourself more pain just so you can feel more holy. Life comes with enough suffering as it is. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross any longer than he needed to. When he was done, when the work was finished, this next phrase follows very fast, very quickly. He summons all his strength, pulls himself up on the weight of those nails, pushes himself up on the weight of his feet, or pushes the weight up on, on, the, on the nails in his feet. He cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's three things I want you to see here. Three things I want to point out specifically. Jesus never surrendered to the will of man, but was always walking in obedience to his Father. Get this. Know it. Own it. He chose the nails. He chose to be in this place. He decided to stay. He was in control even in this moment of death. Jesus wasn't a martyr. It wasn't as if he was dying and failing to accomplish some task. I don't, I don't want to take away from what martyrs do. I, I totally appreciate Christians that are martyred for their faith. Because out of that, much often happens. But the reality is, Jesus isn't just another martyr. He's the one that made it happen because he chose to make it happen. And Jesus was always, he was always in control. At any moment, he could have listened to the counsel of those that, that laughed at him and mocked him. And he could have called down help from heaven. At any moment, he could have... He, he, he could have uh, reduced his own suffering at any moment. He could have taken himself off the cross. He was not murdered. He died by his own will in obedience to the Father. Now we know that the night before, the night before as he prayed in the garden, he wasn't looking forward to it. He wasn't, he wasn't obviously excited about it. He was, he was praying. His soul was in, 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 in anguish. His, he, was, he was concerned. He was stressed. He, he felt the weight and the burden. So much so that he sweat drops of blood. I'm guessing most of you probably have never done that. None of us have ever carried a, a load so heavy, I think, that has weighed us down so much that we are so consumed that we're sweating blood. Does that ever happen to anybody? Probably not. This is big. This is, this is the deal. This is it's happening. But even in this moment, he was not surrendering to the will of man. He was totally satisfied with what his father had for him. He was totally content. He was at peace in his life. He was not giving up. He knew exactly what needed to happen. And with confidence with peace in mind, with, with, a, with a complete satisfaction that the work was done. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. How many of us, how many of us approach difficulties this way? Much of my responsibility, much of what I do for this church is driven by responding to the desperate acts of people who find themselves in a struggle, or in a trial. I'm glad to serve you in that. I want to serve you in that. But you know, the ways in which we approach our life betray the fact that we don't always trust God. 
The ways that we approach the struggles and the trials and the things that come in this life and those difficulties, they betray the fact that we just don't really trust God. Many of us, you know, as well, I don't know of anybody in the room, and maybe some of you that are visiting, this would not be true for you, but at least the people in the room, I don't think that any of you have had a near-death experience like this, but you certainly have faced struggles. I just wonder, did you face them in this, in this place of contentment and peace and satisfaction? Recognizing that, that there's nothing else that's going to satisfy except God's will for you and that there's not a moment in which you exist, which God doesn't already know and have already purposed in your life for His glory and for your good. I mean, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to live in this way? I mean, what would it require in our lives? What would we have to be about doing in our lives to see, to, to act in the way that Jesus is acting in this moment? I mean, how would you answer the question, what would you have to do to, to find this kind of peace, to live in this kind of contentment? I think sitting in this room with, you know, surrounded by church folks, it happens to be Sunday morning and you know, we, we got good Sunday school answers to give on Sunday mornings, right? I mean, studying the Bible, praying, and, you know, committing to spiritual dif- disciplines, they're going to they're gonna lead us to a place of peace, right? They're going to bring contentment in life, right? Living in unity with other believers, having, having a support system, a structure around you that you know as you struggle, you got your brothers and sisters in Christ that are with you. They're not letting you, they got your back. They're not letting you down. How about Jesus? You know, that's, that's always the best Sunday school answer. You can't go wrong. If you're ever asked a question in a Bible study or in Sunday school, we don't do Sunday school because we don't want that to happen. But Jesus is the answer, right? I mean, Jesus, I just, man, I just need more Jesus. Give me more Jesus, I'll have contentment and satisfaction. Absolutely, Jesus promised food that would satisfy, that would, wouldn't, you'd never hunger again, water, drink that would satisfy, that would, you'd never thirst again. He promised that, absolutely. It's a great answer. But here's the rub. Those answers stand in stark contrast to the things we truly pursue in life. I would never go so, I would never be so brash as to get right up in your face and say you don't trust these answers at all. I think really in your mind, I think the reality is intellectually you really know that more of Jesus, that, that trusting him more deeply and growing your faith, I, I believe it. I, I know that you know these things. But I would go so far as to say that there's a part of our hearts that while we intellectually know it, we don't actually trust it. Tim Keller wrote a book all about this. Uh, I'm going to forget the name of it. I didn't write it down. It's about false gods, you know, counterfeit gods. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. See, you guys got my back. I'm content. He wrote a book all about this, you know, about how in our culture, and the the sad truth is, is that statistics demonstrate that in our culture is the same thing that's going on in our churches, that people pursue power, sex, and money. That they're, they're in pursuit of these things to find their satisfaction, to find their answers, to find their hopes, and to see their dreams realized. 
Well, let's just test this. Let's, let's, let's test ourselves by a show of hands. How many of you are saving for retirement? You have investments that are, that are, are um, you're saving up. Man, you're not letting those go because one day you want to quit working. I got one. I felt like Phil Robertson for those who dug that. Anyway, sorry. Totally off the subject. How many of you have joined the Apple cult? You know, like you got a Mac device. I got two. Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. We are pitiful. <laughs> Paying exorbitant prices. No, don't put your hands down. Come on, put your hands up. Own it. I mean, come on. This is nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> okay, okay. Somebody, somebody paid exorbitant prices so you could have your Mac device. Okay. Okay, keep your hands up because this is gonna this is gonna lead to all of us. All right, if you don't have a Mac device, keep your hand. Or if you don't have a Mac device, join us. If you've got a smartphone, computer. Uh, you know, it's a good thing we got a small crowd here today because it everybody's hands raised at this point. I mean, we all own this, right? We've got stuff, right? Let me ask you a question: Is it possible that some of you have clothes in your closet that you don't need, shoes that you'll never wear? I would get personal. And attack the secrets that we, you know, the, well, we're not going to go there. But the reality is sometimes more than enough money spent on the dainties. How how about eating out? Look at me. I eat out. You know I eat out. I'm not hiding it. I try. Suck my gut in, you know. How about you? You eat out? Show of hands. Come on. Who eats out? Oh, it's so much easier than cooking at home, ain't it? No, no, let's keep them up. Okay, you can put your hands down if you never do any of these things. Spend your money on tobacco. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I got a list of things I want to go through. Spend your money on tobacco. Homebrew. You know, I, I picked these two in, my, in, in particular because in our church, we happen to have, for those that are visiting, we have grown a cult, culture. Maybe a better way to say it, of homebrewers. I personally don't, but we have several that do. How about pay for television? Netflix, satellite, cable, okay? Keep them up because you'll get to put them down at the end of this list if, if you're not here with me. Buy coffee that tastes really good. You know, like you're paying more for a cup of coffee than a gallon of gas. Okay. How many, how many of you, how many of you, uh, well, that's that list. If you, if, you don't, if you don't have something in that list, eating out, paying, to, paying more for clothes, put your hand down. Let's see, we can't, can we? Okay, one more. I know you're getting tired, right? I'm working you. There's a point for this. Sanctifying. How many of you have more than you need? Show of hands. Yeah, man, I, I, I say that one to last because the reality is we all do, but sometimes we don't want to admit it. We have more than we need. Now, hear me, these things aren't bad. I, I don't, I don't want to make it out that it's some horrible thing to own an iPhone and an iPad because it would make me feel bad if it did. <laughs> but the reality is this, that sometimes we make good things or neutral things ultimate things. And we feel like if I can get this, if I can have this, then my life will be complete. I'll be satisfied. I'll be content. 
But let me ask this control question just to kind of gauge where you're at with your stuff. And probably you ought not show your hands on this one. I guess you could, but I think it'd be, I don't think it'd be healthy. How many of you give generously to God through the church to support his mission? This is big. Now, I know some of you are shutting down, oh, pastors, you're always talking about money. This is not about money. But money certainly reveals something about us. At our men's conference we recently had, Chris Estes, was, who is our stewardship team leader, he keeps an eye on this stuff. And honestly, I didn't realize it, had, it was at this point. But he demonstrated to us, the, the men that showed up that day, where we're at as a church with who gives and, and who doesn't give. And he didn't call out any names. He might be calling you. He won't do that. But he demonstrated to us just where we're at as a church. And this is last year's numbers. Now, if you're visiting or you weren't with us last year, you're off the hook until next year. But this is where we were at last year. 59 giving units. It could be an individual or a family. And we're leaving it generic like that for a specific reason. But giving units. Um, 59 of them. We had, in our general budget, this is not money raised to give to the building. This is not money given to somebody going to Africa or supporting our mission in Africa. This was just general giving to support the mission of, of God here in Springfield for what we're doing. We were given $73,013.67. Sounds like a great amount, right? I mean, this is a big number for a church the size of our church. I don't, I don't want to take away from what God's doing. But here's where it starts to get real. 16 units, that's 27% of all of the giving units, gave $56,628, or 78% of what was given to this church was given by 27% of the people. There's a statistic in, church, in the church world, and, and ministers use it all the time for, for talking about how their church does things. 80, 20% of the people give 80% of the money, and... 20% uh, of the people do 80% of the work. And the reality is, hey, we're ahead of the curve. We're at 30, about 30%, roughly 30%. But of that 27%, five units out of 16, five units gave $31,564. Leaving for those other eight the, the remainder. Here's what you have to be careful. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about... Uh, that, that we demand a, a certain amount of money that everybody should be giving at the same level, like our dues. You know, we're not paying dues at the gym. It's not like everybody has the same fee unless you come in here on a day that we're selling it for $10 a month. You give in accordance with your, your, your income, with your, with your level of, of ability. So we recognize that there's going to be people at different levels, and I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty by that. But let me let you in on the part that really punched me in the gut. As your pastor, this, this was an eye-opener. The average gift of the remaining 73% of giving units was $381.06. Not a week, not a month, all year long. So 73% of the people that enjoy the benefits of this church and come to this church because they recognize the work that God's doing in it, 73% of those people only cared enough or counted on what God's doing here enough 
that they were willing to give $381 on average into it. And again, this, this isn't about money. Here's, here's, what my, here's what came to my mind. Here's what hit me right in the gut and, and just weighs on my heart. It's not that more people aren't giving. We're getting done. I, I believe what God wants us to do. I think we could do more. I think we could do better if we had more. Certainly we could. We could support more. We could, we could see more done. Absolutely. But you know what hit me right in the gut? Is that 73% of our people, the vast majority of the people that have come to this church and call it their own, the vast majority of those people think that they can be satisfied by the stuff in the world that they don't even need. That's what hits me in the gut. You know why we don't have contentment? You know why we struggle and we, we, we scrimp and we strive and we fight and we don't feel like we're ever getting ahead? Because we can't get ahead in the world. It's not going to happen. 73% of our church thinks that it's better to keep everything for themselves than to support the work of God in the world. That they're going to find greater satisfaction in the extra 10 or 15 bucks that they have a week than what they might see God do through their giving, their generous offerings. That says something about us. It says something about our people. How we approach life betrays the fact that we don't always trust God. And I, I man, I know it's snowing outside. I got the good people here this week. I know I'm preaching to the choir. You guys wouldn't do that. Somebody is. 73% of our somebody's are. The second thing I want you to see, we got to move quickly. Jesus' last words before death were addressed to his father. I want you to know that. I want you to recognize this. At the very, at the very beginning of the cross, Jesus is, even maybe before he's hung up, he cries out. Well, he doesn't cry out, but he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his suffering, he turns and he no, he's not using the, the, the phrase Father, but he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But now here at the end, the work is done. The, 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 the pressure that's on him is nearly over. He turns again to his father. Father. You see, Jesus knows. He knows that in spite of the fact that he had to suffer, in spite of the fact that he had to endure that anguish, in spite of the fact that he had become detestable to his God, to his father, he knew that he had never been abandoned. God, certainly, there was certainly some distinction, some pressure, some, some distance by, by, made by sin. I, I, again, I don't get it. But Jesus knows in this moment as he goes into death, Jesus knows the one that he can count on is his Father. Father. Not my God, my God. Not some distant being out there. I hope you can hear me. Father. Father into your hands. I commit my spirit. Again, I got to ask the question. How, how, do, do we approach death this way? Do, do we approach the finality or, or the, the reality of, of the end of our lives in this way? You see, 
we have to learn this. We have to grow in this, that on the winning side of salvation, to fear death is to doubt God. Jesus, Jesus hanging there knows, in fact, is willingly giving up his spirit into your hands. I commit my spirit. He breathes his last. He's content. He's at peace. He's not, he's not trying to hang on a second longer. Oh, I can't let go. In our world, we, we applaud people who survive cancer. And, and man, don't, please hear me. I say this with the utmost respect and the sensitivity to the issues and the struggles that we face in this life. But we applaud people that hang on, that survive. There's a whole show about it, surviving. There's all kinds of shows about it. Some of them are are game shows, and some of them are people telling you how you can survive in horrible situations. Survive, 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 survive. But on the winning side of salvation, to fear this moment that every one of us will face is really a, a reality of the doubt of God. Because Jesus accomplished everything he set out to do because Jesus had gone before us even in death we can follow him in death we can live in this truth second corinthians paul writes second corinthians 5 6 through 8 so we are always of good courage we know that while we are at home in the body we are away with away from the lord for we walk by faith not by sight yes we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the lord He wrote these words in a a greater emphasis, demonstrating the the temporal nature of our lives here. He wants us to know. He wants these people at Corinth to know. He, He wants you to know. There's no escaping this moment which you come to the end of this life. But for those that believe, when our spirit departs, it doesn't go into nothingness. When we're not here in our bodies, we are with Him. You see, by faith, we now live with the same trajectory as Jesus. By faith, we now have the same hope, the same promise, the same end goal as Jesus did. Jesus ended up at God's right hand. We may not go quite that far, but we will go into his presence. Some of us fear death, betraying the doubt that we have in God. And some of us, our problem isn't fearing death, but how we mourn another's death. Because in Christ, even our mourning should be different. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that means the people that had died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I know there's hurt in this room. I I know particularly people in mind, as as as, as I wrote this, that came to mind, that have suffered loss of people that are close to this. And the reality is, is if you're not old enough at this point to have experienced some great loss of someone important to you, just hang on, it's going to happen. Every one of us do. But there is a fine line here. Certainly, we're going to miss people. Paul doesn't tell us that we shouldn't grieve them. And he tells us, uh, in our, in, you know, that in your grief, just don't do it as others do it. There should be a distinction because there's a fine line between mourning and missing a person and wishing they were still here with you. And those who die trusting Jesus, they have had the trials of this world replaced. <laughs> they have had 
the trials of this world replaced with something much better. With something more, worth much more. I mean, it's just something that will bring a much greater level of satisfaction. The comfort of their Creator's presence. And there's a fine line as we sit and we mourn and suffer and grieve over the loss. And please hear me, I know this. I've experienced it. I've seen it in my own family. Are we going to sense the loss? Yeah. Are we going to are we going to miss our loved ones? Yes. Are you going to find times that you're thinking of them and, and remembering them? Yes. But don't just long to be with your loved ones. Because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, in His contentment and the peace and the satisfaction He had, we now can long to be with Him with our loved ones. It's a whole different perspective. You're not looking for satisfaction from the people you've lost. Oh, if they were just still here, my life wouldn't be chaos. If they just had, had not left me, if I had, didn't feel this sense of abandonment, if I wasn't feeling this suffering and this sense of loss, I know you feel it. I feel it with you. But no, know, know this. Your hope is not to have them back here. The satisfaction doesn't come from having them with you. It comes from you being in Christ's presence with them. That's the hope. Do you believe that? That's what Christ did for you. That's the satisfaction He wrought for us. That's the contentment that He brings to us. I know. I know the hurt. I want you to hear just this last point and we'll do it quickly and into closing. Jesus faced death with confidence because of His unwavering trust in His Father. See, this is the foundational piece that undergirds everything else that Christ did while He was here on earth. Jesus believed so deeply in His Father's plan for Himself and for His people. He knew that not to follow through would, would be temporary satisfaction. He knew that not to move through the process would bring just, just a temporary relief. And he didn't go into this frustrated and doing what He could to regain control of the situation. He was confident. He was at peace in the midst of it because he trusted his Father with the utmost being of who he was. Into your hands I commit my spirit. This moment, it, which is dread for many of us, this moment which scares many of us, where, where our spirits are ripped from our body and we have no complete understanding, we have no insight into what occurs other than what we've been told by Him, what's been worked out by Him. This moment, Jesus faced it completely trusting His Father. He stayed on the cross. He suffered in anguish. He he the pain. He felt the weight. He offered forgiveness that we might have salvation because He trusted in His Father's plan. And He was satisfied and content with what His Father had for Him and for us. This is that undergirding truth. But it not only moves 
him to do this with God, it moves us as well. Now, Jesus knew already what we should all learn. The kingdoms we might establish on earth fade in the glory of the kingdom that he's establishing for us. So because of Jesus, we no longer have to fight and scrimp and strive to, to establish ourselves in this world because he's made it for us and the one to come. We no longer need to cling to this life as if it's our hopes and dreams. We no longer need to cling to the relationships as if they will provide us our identity. We don't have to control anymore uncontrollable situations. And all of this, because Jesus trusted his Father enough to give his spirit into his Father's hands. And then he says to us, he says, now, trust me. The way we approach life betrays our trust. The way we approach and deal with death betrays our doubt in God. The reality is, is that there's people here today I'm, I'm, I'm confident of it. I'm convinced of it. There are people in this room today who have believed in Jesus like a kid believes in Santa Claus. I think he's real. I think he walked the face of the earth and I think he died on a cross and rose again. I think he did those things. But you've never trusted him. There's a distinction between Christians and non-Christians. And that's the faith that follows Christ. The faith that that trusts in Him, that leans on Him, that rests on Him, that knows that tomorrow is in His hands, that our eternity is in His hands. And some of you today that I'm afraid have grown up in churches and been given this bill of goods that if you just know more about Jesus and say you believe it, well, that's no more, that's no different than believing in Santa Claus. What happens when you, well, better not say that too loud. What happens? Do you trust? Do you trust Him? What's your life tell you about what you trust? We've went through it. I asked you the questions. I've confronted you with the situations. What are you trusting in? What do you believe in? Now, some of you, some of you, man, you trusted Jesus for life, but you're not trusting Jesus in life. You're not trusting that He cares as much about your situations and circumstances as he does. You're not believing that he has his best intention for you. And when you, when, when you don't have the money or when the car breaks down or when, when the kids go awry or when, when the house is lost or, or when the job is gone, he has good intentions for you. When you face death, he has good intentions for you. There's not a moment that you exist in. This is the promise of Scripture, not mine. There's not a moment that you exist in that He has not already purposed. He, he knows it. And He's already purposed it for His glory and for your good. We need to grow up in that faith. We need to grow up in that confidence that we can walk in this contentment and this satisfaction of what our Father has for us. And some of you, you're you, You're mature. Don't, don't think you've arrived. Don't think that, that, oh, I've attained it all. See where your life betrays your doubts in God and your belief in, in the things of this world. Let's pray. Father God, you're good and you're gracious. We thank you.
for your wonderful work through your son, Jesus Christ, for the provision of forgiveness and salvation that we might enjoy the fruits of your work. God, would you just be in this moment? I know that there is a heaviness, that there is a weight. I know that there is a, a stress that we feel. God, I know that as we talk about the death of loved ones and the, the death that we face, the struggles we have with, with the things that we own, I, I know that those are very sensitive areas. God, I'm going to ask it in this moment through your spirit you would minister and that you would show us the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy. We would rec- I, God, I, I know this is a process. I know that this is a work in progress, that there's a sanctification, that, that, that this will be going on until the day you call us home. I know, God. And so, so please, just, just help us not to feel the guilt, not to feel, the, not to feel a conviction from me, God, but to stand in front of you and know that you will help us work through these things as we deal with them. God, would you work in your grace? Would you remind us of your provision and your protection? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.